0: Speaking about that mistrust in your report, you highlighted that that underrepresentation of black healthcare professionals um, also just adds to this, to the um, inequity we see in the health system. And something I learned today, actually, which I thought was just shocking was how Back in, um, at Queen's University in 1918, they strongly encouraged their black medical students to uh, leave the school and just to reflect like the, the racist beliefs of society at the time. And so this is in Canada, in Kingston, and they said essentially their community doesn't want black health professionals, so the black medical students should leave the school. And so following that in 1918, they had a ban on black students entering medical school until 1965. And so that's in our parents' lifetimes, you know, that's fairly recent. And so if you, people may say, oh, well, you know, why don't we have more black people um, within the health system? Are they just not achieving that goal? But okay, let's look at what systems were in place that prevented that access.
1: This
2: is the Public Health Insight Podcast. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. Dami Lowall, Danielle Rawlinson, and Luan
1: Meheri remain for part two of our discussion, highlighting key findings from a collaborative report titled The Urgent Need for a Systems Thinking Approach to Address Anti-Black Racism in Ontario, a Call to Action for Decision Makers and Policymakers." In this episode, we will examine systemic anti-black racism in the justice and healthcare systems, as well as some strength-based approaches and some next steps for those interested in becoming more involved in the fight against anti-black racism. This is where we left off in our discussion.
2: So, I'm here to give Gordon's voice a break. And then we'll talk about the justice system. So as we know, black communities also experience racial profiling and higher rates of incarceration compared to the general population. And I was hoping that we could discuss what ways does our justice system continue to harm black communities? And what were some of the more shocking things you found when you were preparing this report?
3: It's clear and prevalent that the justice system is biased and, you know, um, racial profiling is prevalent. We had carding years back, which, you know, you know disadvantaged many black youth um and i just think that you know nothing really shocks me when it comes to the justice system in regards to like mm-hmm. um how it kind of marginalizes black people further um and you know clearly in light of this report all the murders that happened in the us let's just be clear all the murders uh, by police and things of that nature um you know highlight you know, on, on a more overt level, I think what's what happens in our in the justice system here. Obviously, it's a little bit softer. That you have people who have experiences where they're carded or they're racially profiled, um, but there are people who have been abused by police, off-duty police. Um, you know, or you know, they've they've actually been targeted specifically by police, and I think that you know a lot of people don't believe it in canada that that happens um and they just look at the states as a, an other right um but it happens here and i think highlighting this again with you know facts and numbers is very important um because it's the system the system is inherently ingrained to be uh, you know anti-black um and it's unfortunate um and it's just where that i parallel a lot i think with indigenous communities because i feel like they um For some reason, um, those communities were able to uh, get the support uh, to kind of make changes within the judicial system. Um, For example, they have the Gladue report, um, which, you know, essentially when it comes to sentencing for Indigenous people, they take into account their historical disadvantages um, through, you know, residential schools and, and, you know, essentially having their land taken away from them. Um, and I think that that's something that, again, we can really just jump off of um, as, as Black people. And I think that's a safe way to start um, because, you know, we have similar experiences um obviously unique to to us um but i i think it's important that we kind of look to what's already created and and kind of tweak it to assist the black community because you know sentencing for black people is just disproportionate as well right like Mm -hmm. um you know how many black people were arrested for cannabis and still have you know they still have a, a rap sheet for that so to speak um you know there are lawyer criminal lawyers who are trying to change the policies and change um you know h- at least highlight for people that they can you know get that removed from their um their names like that they are not criminals but unfortunately you know the government's not going to tell them that right, um, right. and it's just yeah, it's just it's sad, but it's a, just a true reality, I think, in our system.
4: Yeah, and over time, the police force has not been a very positive presence in Black communities, specifically low-income, highly racialized communities. Um, they are presence that's often feared or um, met with resistance because they've seen so many negative interactions with their, bros- their brothers, their cousins, their family members, their friends, their neighbors, and. Um, I think uh because of that if we're talking about like police reform and things like that like there's a reason why statements like defund the police are made it's because there really needs to be a rebuilding and restructuring of the system um, that completely takes into account community needs and why there is resistance in this those communities and certain fears and then building on that to come up with solutions that actually Help to to improve um, outcomes in highly racialized, low-income communities mm-hmm. with high rates of crime.
5: Yeah, and just like going off of that, um, during the course of um, this research, a key thing that I guess came to light was like understanding the difference between like the police department being in a community to serve that community and dealing with their population-specific or community-specific issues versus them, like, I guess, taking up space in the community and, like, being at a disservice um, to the community members. Like, a fact that I remember saying was that um, the police in, in, like, downtown Toronto, uh, black people were approximately 17 whole times more likely to be carded than white people. Like, we're not talking two times, we're not talking five times, 17 times, like, huh? Like, that's like a big, um, disproportionate, um, measurement. And I guess it targeted, exactly. <laughs> um, Man. and if you think about it, it's like if police are being deployed to high crime neighborhoods, so, uh, neighborhoods with more, um, black people, it's like obviously there's gonna be a higher concentration of people that they're actually. Um, catching or um, taking or carding. Um, and that would obviously further impact the amount of stats that you're seeing. Like, okay, so now more police are being deployed. So obviously, you're seeing more black people in there, uh, which is further reinforcing the stereotype, which is further um, affecting the way they're seen, they're perceived. And there's the whole like you know self self uh fulfilling prophecy that was like a big thing that was also stated um during their um the research
3: of this report so these are just like um important aspects that definitely inter uh impacts the interactions with police right like if you feel like you you can't actually reach out to police for help, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to fear the police, then your relationship with them is broken. And it's just a cyclical thing, right? So you it's not just a fear, but it's a distrust of the police. And when there's no trust and and the police feel like they're not they're not trusted and there's fear, right? They reinforce that with, you know, this kind of power trip that they have. And the relationship will never be mended. So it's just a cyclical issue. Um, And it it starts from, I, I believe, yes like defunding a lot of the the uh, defunding the police they they uh, they're going out to for wellness checks and things where they shouldn't be you know going out for they don't have the skills they've admitted they don't have the skills and i think that it's important to kind of like reevaluate what the role of the police is in these communities Um, and then from there you know reestablish that relationship
2: absolutely
6: in my journey to understand what defund the police means, that's some of the things that I came across. Like, um, oftentimes people think, you know, the rhetoric, you know, south of the Canadian border um, from you know who is often that, you know, by defunding the police when there's an emergency, there's going to be no one there to help you. But what defund the p- police really means is there are certain instances where a police response is not effective or appropriate. And in those kind of situations, different kind of more specialized resources um, will be used to, to, to address those situations. So, um, you talked about, uh, we know we know firsthand that a lot of the times, you know, first responders um, respond to a call. It's it's a lot of times mental health related issues. So, um, is is someone showing up with a gun the like the best way to kind of you know, talk someone down in a crisis situation? Um, I don't know, um, if there are other kind of specialized supports like social workers that respond to those calls, um, do they need some kind of protection in some instances? Maybe. So it's not about the the police just kind of just being abolished and there's going to be no systems in place to ensure the safety of kind of civilians. It's just that constantly increasing like police budgets to deal with a lot of these problems is not the solution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh,
4: And a lot of that money can be reinvested into community. Initiatives as well, like um, what are we doing to build a community, like youth programs, um, getting them in, invested in in things that are you know contribute to academic career growth or just positive reinforcement, as well as uh, initiatives for increasing opportunities for employment, so that um, you know in low income, low income areas specifically, youth aren't having to resort to um, you know illegal measures to try to get. Uh, money just to put rent down or or make payments for food um, that there's actual other opportunities out there that give a livable wage to these communities and, and what are we doing to invest in that financially and with human resources mm-hmm.
7: yeah and I think something that you know really came out of this report that was evident in all four of the systems mentioned is that the black community or the, or the afro-canadian community isn't you know just uh like one singular entity, right? There are like as we mentioned in the previous section, there are specific um, sections of that population, such as you know uh, women or those who identify as you know two SLGBTQ plus, who are you know, further discriminated, further stigmatized, further and experience additional uh, levels of racism, discrimination, and inequity that makes their experience, you know. I guess the the impacts are felt even more, essentially. So I think it's one of the ways that we just see these systems continuing to, um, you know, impact these communities, not only just the Black communities, but the the specific subsections of these communities. That was definitely... um, I think an overarching takeaway from this report.
2: Yeah, and I think um, the point that Gordon mentioned regarding first responders and how our healthcare system is also affected is a great segue to go into that part of the, the report, because we know that people often see the healthcare system as a place where you can get to go for help for medical conditions. But the reality is that many populations, such as the Black community, experience disproportionate harm when utilizing these healthcare services. We know that systematic racism in the Canadian healthcare system is driven by various factors. And I wanted to discuss some of these factors that were highlighted in the report regarding that system.
6: Yeah, I guess speaking from personal experience too, and even things I've read, there's we know that um, I think in the um, pain management side of things, you know, healthcare providers are more likely to see people of color as you know drug seeking or drug users, and they might not get the appropriate supports that they need in certain situations, and I know there was a study—I can't remember the the exact numbers—but white people essentially were more likely to be prescribed, you know, kind of more effective pain relievers than black people when seeking healthcare help. So um, it just goes to show that there's some inherent biases to the, and stereotypes um, held by our healthcare providers that um, prevents us from getting the proper medical care that we need relative to other populations.
5: Mm-hmm. And another, like I guess, key thing that I noticed or we found um, is the insufficient research um, for people in the from the Black communities. Um, so obviously, the lack of research would also impact what um, solutions are available for Black communities. So now, take for example, a COVID nineteen um, vaccine is coming out, and obviously, people are excited and whatnot, but right off the bat like even just talking to people around it's like there's that whole mistrust like okay when they were researching it where black people actually part of the people they researched or like were they part of the trials were they part of um where they kept in mind when coming out with the solutions and obviously that contributes to the mistrust because again there's that history for example the tuskegee experiment like there's it's a really big part of why there's this big mistress but no we want to categorize it as black people are not compliant or black people don't you know take these things um seriously or like even some of the things that are taught in schools on how to um notice um for example now covid19 uh, one of it was oh if the person's turning blue um, excuse me, I can't turn blue. <laughs> so how are they gonna know? Uh, so just little things like that. Like there needs to be more, more ways to be able to achieve the same um, service or to provide the same service for people who again can't turn blue or people who wouldn't have the red bullseye rash on their arm. Like how else should a healthcare professional? Um, be able to cater to Black people and help them um, before it's too late. These are kind of things that um, we found while researching um, for this report.
0: Speaking about that mistrust, in your report you highlighted that that underrepresentation of Black healthcare professionals um, also just adds to this to the um, inequity we see in the health system. And something I learned today, actually, which I thought was just shocking, was how. Back in, um, at Queen's University in 1918, they strongly encouraged their black medical students to uh, leave the school, and just to reflect like, the, the racist beliefs of society at the time. And so this is in Canada, in Kingston, and they said essentially their community doesn't want black health professionals, so the black medical students should leave the school. And so following that in 1918, they had a ban on black students entering medical school until 1965. And so that's in our parents' lifetimes, you know, that's fairly recent. And so if you, people may say, oh, well, you know, why don't we have more black people um, within the health system? Are they just not achieving that goal? But okay, let's look at what systems were in place that prevented that access. And so perhaps we may see change now after this policy, for example, at Queen's has been removed, but the impact from previous decisions is still present.
4: Yeah, and it, it also calls into question if those were the ideologies at the school in the time, what did the curriculum look like? How representative was it of Black patients and Black care providers and like specific needs in that sense? I know that there is a research study that was done that showed that um, 40% of first and second year medical students uh, thought that black patients had actually had thicker skin um, which led to less pain um, and so that black people feel less pain than white people do and these are people that are going to go out into the workforce and then serve black patients and what does that look like in practice and, and how does that impact black communities so when we look at things like again, maternal mortality rates, higher rates of hypertension and certain disease. Um, it's not because their biological makeup is different from white people or other races. It's because there's something going on in the healthcare system that's um, that's impacting Black communities and it, and it stems and is rooted in racism.
7: I'll share a bit about um, something that kind of comes up in a lot of my work, you know, working with the Pan American Health Organization and just they emphasize so much on race disaggregated health data and things like that but i think there's often a lot of problems with simply just collecting data for the sake of it right it's like um i think it's as much as you know collecting race-based data it's also important to include the, the 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 cultural components of that of that data because just you know i think we already recognize that there are um disproportionate inequities among races but everyone knows that that that's the case but what are you looking at you need to kind of dig deeper into it and see which aspects are um, you know protective which aspects are risk factors and and i think a lot of the big part of that would be analyzing and considering the the cultural components right Mm -hmm. so i think it's it's one of those things where um i think, from definitely a policymaker perspective it's it's more of a a low-hanging fruit um easy to you know easy decision to make to kind of just please the public but realistically what are the impacts and does it actually make a difference
2: yeah and i wanted to bring it back to danielle's point about education that was brought up in the other systems is that we find that a lot of the education is very white centric so for example from my work um uh, when we look at cancer diagnosis for specifically skin cancer what's being taught in the books for medical education is not uh, reflected for people of darker skin So that immediately affects the health outcomes of that population, right? And then when we look at innovations within these um, healthcare systems, we find that they're also white centric. You know, oftentimes they're built on racist ideologies through systemic means. Uh, For the case, the notable symptom of Lyme disease is that that bullseye rash, which is not easily seen on darker skin. So again, it's like Luan mentioned before, these ideologies that were present historically And then as we know through research and medical education there's always that lag there's always that 20 to 40 years where it takes time for this to be implemented but if people don't even realize this is an issue how can you even bring that up right so that's something that the report also talks about
4: and just to add to that ben like oftentimes even in higher level education like university or graduate school we're taught to narrow our scope when we're doing research to just higher income nations which are usually Mm. Eurocentric. And so, of course, the, a lot of the data that you're finding is not going to be specific to communities of color. Um, and why do we have this idea that that's better data than mm. maybe data that comes from different continents that are, are more racially diverse? And I think that we really need to get out of that idea of um, only focusing in on higher income nations or looking into research, specifically medical research um and figuring out how to better serve uh, black communities
2: absolutely
6: awesome it's a great discussion guys i'm very i could be here all day but i know everyone has their own life to live so um we'll just this is going to be our final segment so um one thing that i always find and you know when there's kind of um you know racial minority you know or ethnic minority at the subject of a discussion we often get into i think the word they use is pathologizing you know this race or this ethnicity just have you know it's just all bad and there's nothing good and you get into this doom and gloom and then you know the very problem that you're trying to avoid or 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 issue that you're trying to solve um what's 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 happening in those cases is that people might lose a sense of hope because things are considered quite bad right so um for this part of the discussion i want to highlight more of a kind of a strength-based approach um to Addressing some of these systemic inequities that we see um, throughout all these systems, and you know what kind of you know whether it's in your line of work, what you're doing on a daily basis, your colleagues, what you see of other organizations, uh, maybe speak to some of the the important work that's happening in those communities um, led by you know black leaders, if you will, um, to address some of these challenges that we see that are hundreds of years. In the making and still a challenge today so let's get into a little bit more about some of the the good that's happening to address some of these these issues
3: um i think i wanted to start um just because i'm in a profession where you know we we strive to for equity inclusion diversity supposedly um however you know the percentage of Black legal professionals in Ontario and throughout Canada is is just a speck um, in comparison to uh, non-Black. And, you know, when I got into this profession i i I wasn't really thinking about that i was just kind of thinking of get making it through law school um but through like the black law students association of canada and further through the canadian association of black lawyers um i just saw that like the black legal community is so strong um and that they're actually advocating and actively pushing for change um through you know whether it's through, uh, you, you know, diversity and inclusion, uh, initiatives, um, by highlighting, uh, black legal professionals within the community, uh, putting them on a platform in which they can make change. And I think that's very, very important. Um, they actually had before, and it it's closed down for a bit. And now it just reopened the black legal action center. Um, so it's like, um, a, a, a legal clinic for black, individuals. Um, And I think that's very important to have because, you know, um, you know you want to be some people want to be represented by people who understand their lived experience and I think that's important to have um, and I think that that's a great initiative initiative to have um, you know the law society itself has um, a diversity and inclusion department which um, some recent ventures have tried to eliminate so there's a lot of politics going on throughout all the professions where you know non-black lawyers want to just push it under the rug that there is any issue with diversity and inclusion or systemic racism within the legal profession, for example. And I think that, you know, the the key to a lot of this change is going to come from the younger people, the youth, the new people coming into the profession because they are so passionate and so brilliant and they're pushing for change, like actively pushing for change. And um, for example, there's a new pro, uh, program called Black Future Lawyers at U of T, um, because I believe they only had like maybe a handful of black law students at UFT of T at one point um, and now they have an undergrad program to kind of push black uh, students into like law school, providing them with the tools and the mechanisms to prepare them to enter into law school and to enter into the profession. So I think, you know, a lot of it stems from grassroots organizations, but also people working within the system and kind of assisting you know, in changing it from the inside out and I think that's very important so I think, you know, from a legal perspective, I see the change is slowly happening. You see the big firms who typically would not hire many black students um, are starting to have a diversity and inclusion, um, you know, portfolios within their firms. Um, you know, they're they're taking the steps. And I think that's very important. So change is slowly happening, I think. And I, and I think it's, uh, to be honest, it's in light of, you know, the killing of George Floyd and, and the whole Black Lives Matter movement this time around, because we've had these movements before, right? So.
7: Uh I guess I can share um some some of some I guess, strength-based approaches from my work. So as I mentioned earlier, um you know the Pan American Health Organization, which is the WHO's regional office for the region of the Americas, this you know this is an organization that despite kind of all the controversies and issues with the UN system and you know just multilateralism in general, um this the organization, at its current state right now, has placed a lot of emphasis on ethnicity and health as one of its priorities. Uh, the current director of the organization, um, her name is Dr. Carissa Etienne, and she is a um, you know Afro-Caribbean from Dominica, um, trained MD, public health professional. She's been, you know, she's in the se- her second term as the director of this organization, and she has made it r- really kind of her goal to include uh, the health of afro descendants as one of the part of the paho health agenda and a lot of the work that's being done whether it's consultations with member states and the inclusion of afro organizations from across the region or you know commissioning reports looking at discrimination racism stigmatization across the region i think these are all good efforts um, in you know moving forward for the region at least uh, on a political level and also on you know, just for the organization to include as part of its strategic framework that, th- that these are important um, topics to cover as well. I think it's it's quite cool to see that for at least for the Pan American Health Organization that a lot of the work that they do, especially with um, you know, Black and Afro-descendant organizations, um, they, they emphasize a lot of it really on you know, working with the community, having community representation at the table and specifically focusing on these vulnerable populations that we discussed earlier, like women, and and providing them a seat at the table so that they're included as part of the decision-making process and that um, you know, that, it's, that it's individuals from the community serving their own community so that they know exactly what's going on. And I think that's, it's, it's, it's good work. Um, obviously, with everything, there's a lot more progress that needs to be made. But I think it's definitely um, kind of been in, in line with this this segment of our discussion today. You know, it's looking at the positives. It's yeah. definitely going in the right direction.
4: Yeah, um, some other like organizations that I think are, are really useful in terms of even just looking on their websites and, and getting information on, on different things, things that are being done at both the provincial and national level. Um, there's the Black Health Alliance, whose mandate is to improve the health and well-being of Black communities in Canada. They have a lot of great information on their website um, and a great resource to reach out to for more information on on what's happening to to try to advance the health of black Canadians. Um, There's also uh, Black Lives Matter which has a Toronto branch that focuses on dismantling all forms of anti-black racism and oppression uh, in an effort to liberate blackness and support healing, black healing. So um, those are some uh, initiatives that are being taken right now that I think are, are really important with respect to anti-Black racism and uh, tackling a lot of the issues that we're facing in our communities.
6: Awesome. So I guess on that note, from you know everyone's perspective, what, whether it's a call to action directly from the report or kind of just a message to the listeners about um, where to go from here, um, from your perspective, I'll open up the floor um, to maybe... You know, everyone here to to share a little bit about their words of encouragement, or you know, anything they have to say on chartering a path forward in terms of anti-black racism.
3: Um, I think just you know, educate yourself on on the systemic issues, i.e., read this report. Um, once you're empowered with the knowledge from this report, take some action. Reach out to your local government. Reach out to your provincial government, um, and make yourself heard voice your concerns right like we need to kind of um, galvanize everyone to to voice these concerns so that they can be taken seriously and so that we can you know have a voice at the table to implement these changes right that's that's how other groups do it and that's what we need to do as well we need to come together as a community and really push to um, have our voices be heard and it starts with educating yourself and understanding how these systems do oppress you as well, right, because some people may not understand the inherent, um, you know, biases, and and I was not aware of the healthcare instances, and and it, it took me aback when I was, understanding that you know through the educational process a lot of the things that doctors learn um, when they're going through medical school is that there's you know inherently racist teachings in terms of like how to treat patients um so things like that are very important for i think people to be um, knowledgeable about and then take that action
2: Uh, i'll hop in next um coming as a person of south asian descent and obviously darker skin um my message would be to Even if you're not black, be very aware of how your culture may be complicit in anti black racism. So, what was really eye opening to me in my culture was there was always this talk of being the model minority. You know, people with lighter skin are favorable. You know, you'll have more success in life, change your name, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a lot of um, parallels there. So, be aware of it, educate yourself, educate individuals in your community, you know. your older family members who may not be as educated, read this report and as Danielle said, reach out to the levers within the governance of your community or within your local area to advocate for these things that we mentioned in this report because they are important. And you know, we are all affected by them in some way.
5: Yeah, like the big thing is like, obviously so much work has been put into this. Um, There are facts, um, backing all these things up. Um, I guess a big difference with this one is like we said, there are actionable steps to see, mm. like someone mentioned earlier, see what step you can contribute to, um, see how you can bring or uh, garner conversation about these steps, um, because like there, this day, in this day and age, uh, being an ally looks like different things, um, but just figuring out what being a good ally um, looks like for you, um, is a big um, aspect of this and there are many um, areas we touched on so definitely at least one should like pertain to your speak to you uh, so just like trying to figure out which one that is and try and be a contributor to the um, change we're seeking or the progress we're trying to achieve.
4: I would call on institutions and systems to take uh, greater accountability. Um, to be more conscious of how their systems might be perpetuating racist ideologies or harming uh black communities and other uh, communities of color indigenous communities as well um and really dissecting the areas in which they find um the flaws in their system and actually working towards rebuilding it, it it's more than just identifying the problem it's working towards a solution and not working towards a solution alone because there's so many community organizations, black community organizations specifically that can assist and aid in in helping institutions to find viable solutions. Um, And yeah, just bring in those community members to the table, ask them what their needs are and how they can make the most impactful change.
0: And yeah, even just to kind of Reiterate what people have said before. I think education is key. So which is why this report is so valuable It's accessible in terms of like the language for a majority of people will be able to um, Understand and take something away from this. So I recommend even if you don't have a background in public health um, Take a look at the report and look through the calls to action because there's something in there that could resonate with most of us I think so um, and then from there Mm -hmm yeah, take action in a way that um, you're able to. And so for me in a health research background, um, specifically with this COVID pandemic, like I'm, this is like a call to action for myself is to work on getting support for more race-based data that is actually helpful in this pandemic that will have an effect now, not in like five years from now when we look back on this pandemic. So
7: my call to action would be, um, you know, the issue of racism is—I find it, especially with um, you know the current messaging that we see—it's—it's it's often very closely connected with you know um, the justice system. But I really encourage um, individuals from non-traditional um, fields such as public health, education, um, urban planning, whatever it is—to find how this issue fits in with your field, and I guess look to see how from that from that perspective you're able to. Contribute to the change because you know we need to have innovative solutions. We need to have out outside of the box, um, yes, ideas and just thinkers to kind of really come together. Because realistically, racism is a whole of society um, issue, and we need to really just I don't know as we talk about so much in public health, multi-sectoral, interdisciplinary, break down the barriers, break down the walls and silos, and just work together to tackle this this problem especially the individuals who tip or the fields who typically aren't brought into the discussion.
6: i um, 100% agree with what everyone said. And I would just add another element to it. At, a, at an individual level, we're learning more about a lot of different terms, allyship, performance allyship, and this and that. And everyone knows that I'm not a big fan of, of a lot of different terminology because it's a very monumental challenge that we have in front of us. And if you look too far ahead, you might get a little paralyzed about what you could do so each one of us can kind of implement new ways of thinking in our life to kind of be aware be more reflective of what the situation is and um small change is good too um you don't have to be on the front lines of a protest to to you don't need to show anyone um you know if you are doing the work you don't need to prove it to anyone that you are doing the work um you could start small like in your workplace maybe you notice that you know hey boss we don't have a lot of diversity in the workplace you know it could be something small like that you don't have to uh, be on the front line to change the world so you can change the world by starting in your own workplace your own communities your own institutions and then collectively those changes will have a big impact and with that we're signing off
1: thank you for listening to the public health insight podcast your go-to space for informative conversations inspiring community action If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make public health viral.